Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. This week, we take a look at the unmistakable stance of Buffalo. Buffalo was a set of social and political priorities expressed through styling and photography. But it had a tenderness, it was poetic, it was intimate. You could do a family tree of everything that Ray and Buffalo have influenced. That moment in time, which was like the mid-80s, cemented something creatively. Since then, it's had this sort of mythical thing. It layered queer aesthetics with racial aesthetics with just a London kind of street style that was very authentic. Youth culture with a multi-faceted photographic musical referencing. And that kind of is the template that is still today, to be honest. I mean, Ray wasn't around for that long, so he never really got full-on sort of commercial credit. He transcended everything, and when we're making images today, he's actually there in the room with us. Buffalo. Even if you don't know what it is, you've definitely seen it. You know the look. A navy blue MA1 bomber jacket, Levi's 501s, men in skirts, sportswear and workwear mixed with high fashion. This was a look pioneered by a small group of people in mid-80s London, centred around the original stylist, a man by the name of Ray Petrie. I met Ray when I was a very young photographer, must have been 19, just starting out. Taking us back to the start is photographer and Buffalo co-founder, Jamie Morgan. We just kind of connected really on our love of, of art and music and we just became friends and he started working with me, assisting me actually. And then, you know, my, the first job I got was for Vogue and that was the golden ticket. That was, every, I'm working for Vogue, you know, straight away out, out of, you know, my first job. And I just really didn't like the experience at all. It was so kind of generic and mundane and the girls they picked and I just thought this can't be it you know and at the same time it was the birth of street magazines the face and id and there was something new happening and and there were there weren't any stylists and so I was looking for someone and I thought Ray who I was working with was the most stylish person I knew and we did our first story which was kind of an urban sport story if you like so we couldn't really find the clothes with the designers we couldn't find the casting you know we 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 tried to find a black model and we phoned up some casting agencies and what we got was nick cayman who was half burmese that was it a man of color slightly slightly dark skin and we were like this is ridiculous you know the people that we know what we hang out with in labrick grove and you know, the kids on the street, there's no, no one is representing them whatsoever. So we started to street cast. So we were just kind of making it up as we, we, we went along, really. The young creatives looking to shake things up. London in the early 80s was a febrile place. Well, it was, it was the birth of something. So it came out of the punk era birth of the 80s you know thatcherism was just starting so there was this kind of punk diy attitude but at the same time there was the, the golden dream of you know there's loads of money around there's this kind of you know 
form your own companies, do it yourself. So it was a perfect place. And I was very lucky because at the time there was a lot of squatting going on. So I was 19 and I had a studio. So Ray would live there, I would live there. I used to look out my window and I used to see Boy George, he had the squat around the corner, Jeremy Healy from Hazy Fantasy, all these kind of new romantic characters. And so I started to photograph them. That's how I got to know everyone. And then we would go to the sort of clubs were like Taboo, uh, later Club for Heroes, all the different kind of subcultures would go there. And so this kind of friendship group started to, to build and there was the Buffaloes. It was never formed officially, but we just kind of, if you look at the Buffalo book, there's 20 people in there. Mondino, Nana, Naomi, Nick Kamen, Barry Kamen, myself, Mark LeBon, James LeBon, and you formed your community on the streets. You've got to remember there was no mobile phones, there was no internet, there was none of that. So you met people, and that's kind of why it was a real street culture. It wasn't long before a clear stylistic movement formed around the ideas that this group of people were pushing. Suddenly, Buffalo was a thing. Here's photographer and filmmaker Mark LeBon. Jamie started doing the odd job with Ray for ID, and I started doing my first proper fashion thing that I did for the face, got published, and to my dismay, the photo credit on it read Photo Buffalo, Mark LeBon, Ray Petrie. And I thought, who the fuck's Buffalo? And uh, so I called them up and I was told that they'd made this uh, company and I was being represented by them. And they did this without even asking me. At the time, I was represented by Camilla Lowther and also I had my own production company. And I was really pissed off that they'd made me part of this thing and that my first credit for a really good picture that I took of Simon with Ray, got credited to some sort of mystical company that I didn't even know about. So what was this mystical collective about? And for starters, what was behind that distinctive name? Ray was brought up in Africa. So he had a very close connection with you know, Africa and blackness, and you know, it was deep in him. And so we were really inspired by these deep cultural styles, really. And so we kind of talked about a lot of names and Buffalo stuck for a few reasons. One, because the integrity of what the Buffalo meant to the American Indians. You know, they would kill and hunt the, Amer- the Buffalo, but they treated them with as great spirits and with great respect. And they would eat the meat, they would use the fur, they would use the horns, you know. And then the white man came along and just, you know, there's pictures of, thousands of buffaloes skinned, strewn all across the plains. And the kind of disrespect of the white colonization of of that world was just horrible to us. So, you know, using this buffalo as a symbol of integrity was important. Bob Marley, buffalo soldiers, and reggae was a very big part of our I guess the soundtrack to our lives, which I can get into a bit, because that was very, very relevant to us and very important. Music was really part of of our thing. And then there was also Malcolm McCarran at the time was doing, you know, Buffalo Girls with the New York 
crew. And we were going to New York a lot. So we started to mix it all together. So we'd have designer, sports clothes, cultural references, you know, like deep, deep cultural references of, that weren't just a fashion reference. They were actually had some kind of emotional, cultural context, you know, whether it was the Jamaican music that we were listening to or African beats or all, all kinds of stuff. So we were bringing the music and the, and the kind of the style from all these cultures into our photography. Mark remembers it as the genesis of a new cultural and creative awareness. An influence that both Ray and I shared was Nova magazine. That, that was around in maybe the late 60s, early 70s. There are stylists there like Caroline Baker who mixed sportswear, workwear, high-end fashion, a sort of more anarchic mishmash. And I think it was those influences that crystallised Ray's sort of styling approach. And in the same way that they were mishmashed together, people's ethnicity was mishmashed together as well so everything was a mishmash and um sort of unraveling that mishmash and putting it back together again was something that also manifests itself in my photographic style and i started sort of revealing the process with my pictures and doing strange kind of post-production techniques with it as well you know, it's pre-computers, so it's pretty rough and ready. It wasn't long before those techniques and influences came together and those iconic Buffalo images were shot. First, there was the hot cover of The Face in January 1984, where Petrie's friend and favourite model Nick Kamen appears on the cover, sporting styled-up ski wear and a yellow sticking plaster on his face. Then came the Men in Skirts cover of November of the same year. And finally, that iconic killer image of a 10-year-old boy called Felix wearing a fedora and a heavy scowl. So then I, I kind of had this idea I was, went and went to Nick and said, look, Nick Logan, who ran the face, why can't we do this as a fashion? You know, we kind of played with ideas and, it, and he was like, well, look, I'm going to call them style pages. And then Ray was like, well, I'm the stylist then. And in a way, that was the first stylist before they were fashion editors for magazines, generally, you know, privileged white girls. Everything was segregated. There was the gay community. There was everyone separated. But it was beginning with the street culture to kind of come together. So we ran with that. In the end, there was like five main stories that really represented what we were doing. And for me and Ray, where our personal connection was, was that when I started, it was late 70s, the punk era. So I had a very kind of punk aesthetic in the way I approached things. And Ray was, like I said, from Sotheby's. He was 10 years older than me, so a bit of a father figure. And because he was gay and I was straight, we had this kind of, this way that we could do it. I said, no, of course he could take his, his, his trousers off. He was like, oh, isn't that, that's not a bit camp or whatever no so i would push him and he would push me in that regard and so there was this place where we met that was kind of classy and and and, and at the same time a little bit street if ray petrie was the first stylist 
It could also be said he remains the most influential. My name is Alistair McKim, and I'm the editor in chief of ID Magazine. So, Al, it's fair to say you're a bit of a Ray Petrie superfan. Can you tell us how you first found out about the Buffalo look? Where were you, and what about it resonated with you? Um, I remember very specifically where I was when I when I discovered Buffalo. I was in Edward Enenfall's um, office in his apartment in Ladbroke Grove. And I saw the Buffalo book on his shelf. And I can honestly say like Buffalo and Ray Petrie has been like the biggest influence on my career. And what was it about these images which were shot so many years before that really spoke to you at this particular time in your life? I think something that still resonates with me is this kind of like melting pot. You know, it's like a real mix of like streetwear, sportswear, high fashion. There's something very slick and clean and graphic. And you feel like you're in a city when you look at Ray's work. You know, I think everything is personal, isn't it? You know, so like I grew up in Ireland, which was like a completely white environment. And then to to see these images of crossover of like race and socioeconomic status and class and like just like you just felt like these young people all being thrown into one city together and creating this work which I find really really inspiring you know and it really I mean really you know if you're if you're into the face ID and arena magazine from that from that era you can't help but be drawn towards Ray's work. So would it be fair to say that Buffalo has played a vital role in your career as a stylist and editor? Yeah, of course. I mean, my in in my bedroom in New York, um, I have a loft in Soho, and there's only one image on the wall in my bedroom, and it's a picture of um, Felix, which is actually from the Face magazine cover. He's very young, um, so the youth culture element is there, and there's so many elements to this image, you know, um, and it's the cover of the Buffalo book, and it's a Jamie Morgan image, and it's the only image in my in my bedroom because it's such an important distilled moment in style history. I was going to say fashion history, but it's not even fashion history. It's like style history. In 1987, just three years after that first cover story for The Face, Ray Petrie was diagnosed with AIDS. Two years later, he passed away. Jamie Morgan remembers that difficult time. Tragically, in 89, Ray died of AIDS. He was the first person that I knew. And it was, it was tragic and scary. And, uh, you know, it became the end of Buffalo in its practical sense. But it kind of, you know, it became the, the birth of the kind of the myth, if you like, and the iconic status and, and, and how it built from that is is incredible to me actually but if you can imagine you know you, you don't have the internet you don't have 20 30 magazines now that you have so many you know i mean the list is endless you had two magazines the face and id so all over the world you know these went and they were people's bibles you know people would come i would bump into people like from Australia, oh, I came to London, I saw the face, you know, it got me here, you know, it got me. It's the reason why I started photography. That kind of built, and so the kind of, 
I guess, cult status started to, to build. And then, of course, the, the later years of Buffalo as an iconic kind of mythical thing is even more relevant than the process of, of, of what it was. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back after the break. I think that Buffalo was really a set of social and political priorities expressed through styling and photography. So it was basically an aesthetic that became huge. And I think uh, why we're still talking about it, even though it was just a handful of people, is that it was really what we'd call today intersectional, although that word wasn't really around then. So um, it layered queer aesthetics with racial aesthetics, with just a London kind of street style that was very authentic and that way of speaking and posing and styling maybe wasn't very visible in those days because it was pre-internet. So it was still quite radical to see those things combined and then projected through magazines and in the end also through music videos and advertising photography. That was Kasia Maciejowska, who wrote a book on the house of beauty and culture, of which Mark LeBon and ID stylist Judy Blame were core members. She identifies a pioneering streak in the history of Buffalo. I think the 80s is kind of interesting because actually there was a lot of experimentalism in the fashion world, in photography, in styling. And it's basically post-punk, so post that era of just punks cutting everything up and reworking it which, by the way, isn't new. You know, you can trace that back through the Surrealist. There's a history of cutting up and recollaging things. Was that very radical at the time, the fact that, that, that in terms of kind of race, sexuality, and, and arguably to a certain extent gender, that that was coming to the fore of image making? After you have punk, I think like the doors were wide open and people were really playing a lot with looks. And I think that's why styling was important at that time. In terms of racial visibility, it was very little. It was hardly anything. And in a funny way, maybe queer visibility was greater in the 80s, but still covertly, right? So that's why imagery is quite powerful, because you don't have to spell things out and you can actually slip things into culture um, without, you know, uh, standing with a placard in a protest or whatever, like you can actually just create that image. And, and maybe that's the skill of photography and styling is that it can create something that's so beautiful and so desirable and so sexy that big companies and, and also people buying fashion want it, even though it, it can contain these radical things. For Ray Petrie and Jamie Morgan, it was a case of posing questions that weren't being asked by the fashion industry at the time. So it was this thing of, you know, why can't men actually celebrate their beauty and celebrate this kind of uh, style? You know, why, why is it 
just the women that are allowed to do this. So we started to work into that. And in a way, we were trying to reinvent the wheel. So we wouldn't just do shoots for the sake of it. It had to have some bigger picture for us. So Men in Skirts, for instance, was really a celebration of the idea that men could be, I wouldn't say feminine, but could be sensitive and stylish and groomed. So, you know, like Nick Kamen, he had you know, a little leather skirt with... We put the Dr. Martin boots on, so there was this toughness. And then there was the kind of fashion jacket, which was the Armani one, which we trimmed in. And then there was, you know, kind of feathers from the American Indian culture. So we are mixing all these things. And he just looked amazing, standing there strong and sexy. And, you know, it was like, well, why can't you show the legs? You know, girls show their legs. This guy's got the most beautiful legs ever. He's a beautiful boy. And then it was this idea of, well, you know, kind of the 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 gender fluidity that has now taken so long to be accepted but for us it was you know the girls were looking strong and and masculine and and forceful and you know powerful the guys could look feminine we we could mix it anywhere we liked so we would cast in our local grocers or down the street or you know whoever we saw or a boxer we used one of the you know world champion boxers it was a mix also. That, that's kind of how it felt for me. And then as with Ray, and as we started to kind of do this work together, people started to kind of satellite, you know. there was We started to work with Naomi, who was the, the only black model we had at the time. She was 14, you know, and, and just started. And, and I know that she has still a great love for Buffalo because she was seen by us in her beauty and we only ever did two or three shoots with her but it it resonates with her because she we saw her for you know who she was which was just a beautiful woman in just a few short years buffalo had redefined the very concepts of the fashion editorial it was more than just style this was a whole change of attitude here's alison mckim again exactly and i think osmond you hit the nail on the head when you said attitude because like that's that's something that, like, you know, you can't really define, you know, and I think that's the thing with what Ray did. It's like quite undefinable in a way that it, what everything was mixed, even like the casting, it was like mixing, the mixing of races. And, you know, like that was something that really is so important. And it was, you know, he really kind of opened the door in that sense for all of us to like have this sort of authority to be able to like celebrate all different types of people. And I think that's something that's ever evolved since that moment, you know, and I think, um, you know, attitude is really what Buffalo stands for, you know. It wasn't just across culture and it wasn't just across fashion, it was across music, you know. It's like, look at Nana, Nana Cherry, like Buffalo stance, you know, it's like, what an exciting time for these young creatives to work in West London. Even before Ray's death, Buffalo had already struck a chord in the wider public consciousness with Nene Cherry's 1988 single, Buffalo Stance. The song, a reworking of the B-side by none other than Jamie Morgan, alongside Cherry's future husband, Cameron McVeigh, hit number three on both sides of the Atlantic. In the John Mabry shot video, Cherry spreads the Buffalo ethos to the masses, many of whom may never have seen those original Buffalo images. Like, I was a teenager when that song came out, 
um, I was at school and I remember we did like in an exercise class, our teacher played that song and we did a dance to it. And that is like a huge transmission of something across cultural environments, right? And um, again, it's quite soulful, it's low key. And in a way that to me references some of the, uh, the, the real influences of Ray Petrie and the Cayman Brothers in terms of what they were listening to. So it was reggae, it was R&B. They're, they're quite mellow, those sounds, right? And, um, and they have kind of a tenderness as well as often being political and, and being uh, like uplifting and inspiring for, you know, resistance. And I actually really like the word counterculture. And I used to, I used to be more interested in the word subculture. And I think subculture is useful for small groups, like uh, little collectives. But actually, maybe Buffalo transitioned out of that to become part of like a wider counterculture that pushes back against kind of mainstream and dominant norms. I don't think it ever went mainstream. Here's Jamie again. Culturally, it became known, especially with Nina, because Buffalo's dance is about, we always hang in a Buffalo's dance, you know, the attitude of, of Buffalo. And she took it into the consciousness of, of, of wider public. I don't suppose they ever really knew what it was, uh, but she represented it so well, didn't she? I mean, she was, you know, a, a mixed race girl in her DMs and buffalo jacket, but she, you know, she wore the look, and so in a way, she did bring it to the public. You know, people wearing jeans, MA1 jacket, Dr. Martins, you know, beanies, and I mean that look is still everywhere. I suppose with Nana, it started to become a bit more of a product. Here's Mark LeBon. It was a reflection for quite a long time. And then when it became a product, it was sort of sadly raised, sort of missed out on the benefits of it becoming a, a product. But yeah, I think it started off as a reflection of sort of a much more multicultural, street-orientated place for fashion. Buffalo precedes my colleague Ailey Duffy's career by many decades, but it still resonates with her and a generation of young fashion fanatics who see parallels between then and now. MA1 bomber, Levi 501s, a pork pie hat, kind of cropped hair, on a really, really tall, handsome man. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Succinct. I love it. And, and also, I mean, I guess what's interesting about of all the subcultures that we're we've explored through this series, I guess Buffalo is the most abstract. It, it didn't go as mainstream as as lots of other ones. But how how did this kind of go on to influence the wider scene or the wider culture? Do you think? Well, I think there's a very particular thing about fashion and also music to an extent in these industries where something that can be really really small can influence a lot of people who have like a bigger platform so for example like the ma1 bomber appeared on the runway not so long after ray petrie was using it as a kind of like marker of his club or whatever 
And then also like the men in skirts thing. It's like it was a whole thing. And then Gautier puts skirts on the runway. I guess also the interesting thing is that because so many photographers and image makers were involved with this, I mean, obviously it it then went into music and it kind of, it definitely has a visual legacy which can be found on the mood boards of designers, photographers, stylists today. Yeah, you see it in the work of a lot of contemporary, particularly young photographers and stylists. And I think part of that is wanting to capture the energy of something that when you look back on it feels really authentic you know one person can do something and it can like change the entire world because of proximity to someone who has a platform um and I think that's that's pretty much what happened to Buffalo I think lots of people were influenced by their work and that just snowballed and now you see it you see it everywhere From a small group of West Londoners burning to show off the new multicultural world they inhabited, Buffalo came to influence a generation of designers, stylists, photographers and casting directors. Its influence can still be felt in most fashion collections and magazines today. It was a jungle. And we kind of were there with a machete, kind of hacking down this path that is now a 10-line freeway with ATMs, you know, left, right and centre. And we never had that. We never got that. Ray died broke, essentially. Uh, He had only ever had one or two jobs, uh, commercial jobs. But the relationship had started and we did a Levi's campaign whereby they realised that this street culture had access to the youth. And so they started to do advertising with us and in since that template was formed you know youth culture to the advertiser with a multi-faceted photographic musical referencing and that kind of is the template that is still today to be quite honest as jamie explained since the tragedy of his death it seems ray petrie's influence has only grown the original stylist always relevant in a way it was unsung Um, but that's often the case with stylists, right? So stylists are like the hidden influences really of kind of our aesthetic culture and fashion. They're behind the shows, they're behind the campaigns, but most people don't know their names. They know the names of models and photographers. So in a way, it was influencing immediately and through the 90s. Um, But I think now we're a bit later and we have this historicizing of those times. And of course, you have like kids now doing all the fashions that we know from those times. But I also think there's some specific resonances with this time. Like it was the 80s. It was Margaret Thatcher. I think in a way, it feels like things have moved on. Like for sure, for example, like androgyny and gender play is hyper visible now on the Internet. But I don't know how much real politics has moved on. Like... So I think outside the bubble of fashion and creative culture, I think we live in a very frightening and conservative and right-wing time. And so that's why, even though we can see those images much more easily now because we have the internet, they're actually still powerful. They're still the aesthetics of resistance, which is why I think they feel exciting. 
I think the reason that he's sort of um, credited as the first stylist is because it's styling in the way that we know it today, which is really sort of mixing genres. You know, we, we sort of take it for granted today. You know, it doesn't seem like the idea of mixing sportswear and streetwear with high fashion doesn't seem like that kind of extraordinary today. But actually, it had to come from somewhere and it came from Ray. He's He's often called the godfather of style. And I think that's you know the perfect sort of title for him really because also i think it was it's more about like um how he created a community around styling buffalo was a movement you can't really define it because it was more than just one thing fashion imagery music nightlife a community and a city at a particular moment in time regardless of the industry the looks the legacy the Buffalo Movement and Ray Petrie's life was about the people he loved and the lives he changed. There were the stylists Mitzi Lorenz and Judy Blame, the photographers Jamie Morgan, Mark LeBon, John Baptiste Medino, Cameron McVeigh and Roger Charity. Then there were the faces, the models in their shoots, Nick and Barry Kamen, martial arts champion Tony Felix, Simon de Montfort and even a young Naomi Campbell. Not to mention Nene Cherry too. Here's Jamie Morgan with the final word. What happened was, for me, I'd kind of let photography, fashion photography, go a little bit because I couldn't really think of anyone else to work with. And then I was asked by Irina to do 20 Year Since Ray Died issue. And if you look at it, it's got the big buffalo on the cover. And uh, because Ray wasn't there, I was like, well, who are we going to work with stylistically? And it became clear that uh, Mitzi Lorenz, who was very young at the time, was styling, and for for me specifically, Barry Kamen, who was Nick Kamen's brother, who had worked with Ray and was an artist and had been styling. He had the natural heritage of it, and it reignited my passion for photography. And then what started to happen was I started to get contacted from this next generation that had started to study Buffalo at school. So there was like Ibrahim Kamira, Campbell Addy, who were inspired by Buffalo, who came and said, look, that gave us the confidence to be who we are. It was so lovely to see them take on what we had created into a whole new world. So they took their, their, the truth of their heritage with the Black Lives Matter movement. At the timing was just perfect. So this, this new gen who... The whole thing that we had done unintentionally, if you like, but gender fluidity, cultural diversity, all, all the things that are now must-dos, if you like, kind of were, were genuinely brought into the forefront with this new generation. And that, for me, if Ray knew that, he would just be so overjoyed. Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed, with research and additional writing by Ailey Duffy, production assistance by Amelia Phillips, Marta Abramaitite and Sean Griffiths, and art by Callum Glende and Alexandra Talarcher. The audio producer was me, Robin Lieber, and Identity was produced by Podmasters at Vice Media.